Well, good morning, everyone. I'm here with Andy Crouch. Andy is the author of the TechWise Family. He's going to talk about that in a few minutes. But, Andy, I thought before you talk about the TechWise Family, you talk about your family. Yes, sir. Uh, I am the son of Wayne and Joyce Crouch. Uh, they live still living uh, in Amherst, Massachusetts. Uh, I had a sister, Melinda. She had four children, uh, three of whom are still living, one of whom uh, had a very beautiful and painful story with her daughter, Angela, but uh, four nieces and nephews on that side. I married Catherine, who grew up in Swarthmore. Uh, we met in Boston. Oh, we shout out to Swarthmore. <laughs> hey, Swarthmore. <laughs> Swarthmore doesn't really have a like a cheer. It's not really a Swarthmore kind of thing to have a Swarthmore cheer. Woot, woot, Swarthmore. But anyway, uh, moved back to her hometown, uh, and her parents are just around the corner from us. And we have two kids, Timothy and Amy, now in their late teen years. So Andy was the former editor of Christianity Today. I think you work for the Templeton Foundation now. Yes. And has written a series of books that I love. He writes a lot about culture and how we can influence culture as Christians. But Andy, when did you get the idea that a book on tech needed to be written? <laughs> well, this particular book about technology and family life, um, I would be speaking about other topics like culture, creativity, the image of God. And uh, often I'll talk about some of the odd choices my wife and I made about technology in our family, which were, we limited it in a number of ways when our kids were small. And I would just mention this in the course of a, a talk or teaching. And then afterwards, uh, a whole, the, uh, talk after talk, a whole group of young parents would come up and be like, wait, tell me more about that part. They weren't actually interested in the other things. It was actually, what did you do with your kids? And could we do things differently? And so I was realizing there was a need or demand for this in a sense. And then my friends at uh, the Barna Research Group, which is a kind of market research firm, they said, when we're doing research, we're just finding over and over this topic of technology and family is important to people, needs more study. So what, what we ended up doing together is they did some research about how technology and family life intersect right now, and they asked me to write kind of, in a way they did how it is, the way that things actually are, and my part is actually about how, about how the way things could be, or perhaps should be. Now what has shocked me is, uh, how much your book is resonating with, with people that have no kids. Uh, ah. A lot of 20-somethings are coming to me. They've seen your talk for Q, uh, and they're saying, oh my gosh, uh, I'm doing radical things in my own life because technology is affecting us all. Why don't you talk about that for a couple seconds? Right. So actually, one of the premises of my book, even though it is about family, the, one, the first premise is it's not about kids. Uh, it's not about uh, one generation or one age or stage. All of us are enveloped in this. All of us sense it's not working really the way that we thought it would when we first lifted the cover off the Apple device. A bit of the Apple, Did yeah. You, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when we, well, isn't that the way? That's is it? exactly what When it we is. bite the Apple, it's like, I thought it was going to be this thing. It turns out to be this other thing. We, we all have that ambivalence. And so this book is about a lot more than just parenting or just family. It's about how it works in all of our lives. So Andy, we're in the middle of a family series, and, and we're tracking, uh, the, there's a great amount of research that was done about raising fantastic families, and there's there's six things that are a must, and two of the things I think you're going to talk about today, uh, one is positive communication, where the authors say members of good families have to have communication skills, but they need to spend a lot, large amount of time talking to one another, right? Yes. And then the other is time together. Strong families spend a lot of quality time together, and technology's ruining that. 
It's giving us a way to spend time together without being together. Uh, I have friends who are engaged to be married and the fiance gave to her, her fiance a card that said, I can't think of anyone I would rather spend the rest of my life lying in bed looking at my phone next to. I knew we were in trouble early on when the smartphone came out. Uh, there's a group of guys that we have dinner out, we go to a movie quarterly, and it was over Christmas break, and I knew something was wrong when we were in the pizza place, and every guy was looking at his phone, and I, I'm like, guys, we, we, we gotta come up with another way. We can't do this, because we might as well just stay at home. So wow. I wanted to thank you for coming. Uh, guys, you're gonna really enjoy this, and unlike my sermons, which you probably forget by dinner time, this is one you're gonna track to a long, long time. <laughs> thank you, Bob. <laughs> I think uh, one memory I have that will be with me until the moment memories are no more, and maybe beyond that in some way in the new creation too, it'll, it'll still be there, uh, it is actually the moment that our marriage, my wife Catherine and my marriage, uh, grew and became in a sense of family. Um, it was the moment that my son was born. Timothy is his name, he's 20 years old now, uh, but that moment he was about two minutes old and it had been a demanding labor, and the doctors needed to attend to Catherine uh, for a few minutes, and so rather than being brought to his mother, he was brought to me. And my son, just newly cleaned up from the messy process of birth, uh, wrapped in this swaddling towel, was put in my arm, really one arm would, would do it at that point, and he was wide awake. His eyes were wide open, and he was looking right into my eyes, and I was looking into his eyes. When I was born, uh, for, there was a period in the 20th century where doctors thought that babies at that stage, newborn babies, couldn't see, couldn't focus their eyes, certainly couldn't pay attention to anything. That was absolutely wrong. <laughs> we now know that babies arrive looking for something or really more precisely, looking for someone. They arrive looking for a face. We're born able from minute one to find with our eyes a face and fix on that face and gaze back and forth. And that's what I got to do with my son. And for a few moments, I just looked at him and he looked up at me and in his expression was something like, what just happened to me? <laughs> and who are you? <laughs> but there was also this incredible sense as I held him, as our gaze locked, it was like, whatever just happened, I think it's okay. <laughs> I think I'm held. I think I'm known. And I was looking back at him before I ever said a word to him, just saying, it's okay. You're here. This is going to be amazing. And then I said, you're Timothy. You're my Timothy. And we were actually built for this as human beings. What was happening in that moment, we now know through neuroscience, is that both of our brains, Timothy's and mine, and everyone in this room, has this very large part of our wiring, the neural wiring of our brain, that is designed to gaze at another human being and actually imagine what they are feeling and thinking. We have these mirror neurons in our brain that when we see someone else with an expression on their, on their face, so suppose that Timothy, he wasn't smiling quite yet, but in just a couple of months he'd start smiling. 
And when I would be gazing at my son and he would be smiling at me, the mirror neurons in my brain actually fire the exact way they would if I myself were smiling. We're designed to see someone else, and actually our own mind imagines what it's like to be that person and engages in communion with that person. So as I'm making these gestures right now, like I just did this gesture, I don't know what it means, but I'm talking with my hands, and the mirror neurons in your brain right now are firing just in the way you would if you moved your hands like this. Because we're designed to enter that deeply into communion with each other. And that's what starts in, that, in those first moments after we're born. It's what was happening between us, this kind of mutual beholding, and then this naming. Your name is Timothy. Let me tell you what's going on here. I'm your father. I love you. You've been born into a world of love. This is how family is meant to begin. And by, way, by the way, these mirror neurons, uh, if Timothy had been born without sight, as some people were, as my niece, who lived only 12 years, she was born without sight. But actually, a child like that very quickly would, would learn to touch and would touch the face of their parent or whoever was caring for them. And actually, their mirror neurons would figure out, this is a face, this is a person. And they'd learn to mirror that way. We're just built for this. We're built to be persons. And what family is for most deeply is the creating and the fulfilling of what it is to be a person. So I want to give you two quick pictures or kind of templates or models of what it is to be a person, and then we'll talk about technology. <laughs> I am going to talk about technology, but I actually, it's much more important to me, uh, and I think it should be more important in worship to talk about who we are as persons before one another and before God. So what is it to be a person? It's to engage in what Timothy and I started doing the very moment he was born, and it's kind of a cycle or a sequence. And here's the words I'd use for it. Behold, act, evaluate, and then again, behold. So behold is kind of an old-fashioned word, but it, it means not just to see and not just to look, but actually to really deeply encounter by looking, right? And that's what was happening before Timothy did anything, before I did anything. We just beheld one another. And then what we do as human beings is then having beheld one another, we act in some way. And I acted by speaking to him, by naming him and saying, this is your name. Uh, I love you. I, I spoke something. I acted. And then once we've acted, we have this moment of kind of evaluating how we've acted. How did that go? <laughs> and... And Timothy and I, in that very early way, but then it got better and more complex as he grew, right? Uh, this, he would evaluate, and I would evaluate. And sometimes babies evaluate, and they're like, this is not good. And they start crying, right? And they act in response, and the parent then acts. And then finally, you get back to this sort of state where you're able to just behold each other again. So this is actually the pattern of lots of things. I want to point out to you, it's actually God's pattern. The reason we have this sequence of behold, act, evaluate, behold, is because this is actually how God is with us in our whole world. And so go all the way back to page one of the Bible and think about this story. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind, but this is also the word for breath or spirit from God, swept over the face of the water. So Genesis 1 begins with God simply beholding the unformed world. Before God acts, the Spirit is there just kind of hovering or sweeping over it. 
Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. So God has acted. He acts by speaking. God, whenever God speaks, it's so. He's able to act and speak at the same moment. And then he evaluates. God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness, called the light day. So he also named, just like I named Timothy, God named his most elemental creation, day and night. And then there was evening and there was morning the first day. And at the end of every one of these days of creation, God doesn't act and doesn't, God doesn't even evaluate. He just beholds. And on the seventh day, the day of Sabbath rest, God simply beholds the world he's made. And behold, it's very good. This is how God is, but it's also what it is to be a person, to recreate that every day. In a way, this is the pattern of a healthy day of your life. To wake up in the morning, and on a healthy day, you don't wake up with undue anxiety or need to act right away. You just wake up, you kind of gradually come out of sleep, maybe on a weekend when the alarm clock doesn't like jolt you out. Act, act. You know, you just wake up, and for a moment there, you're just beholding. And then we get into our day and we act during the day. And then maybe at the end of the day, we're sitting down maybe with family or friends and we evaluate, we kind of assess, how did this day go? And then as we lie in bed on a healthy day, not most nights for me, that can be a lot more anxious or a lot more regretful, but we just behold. And it's what we do when we parent. It's what parents do for their kids. So when that child is learning to walk, the child is acting, and the child is evaluating at the same time and is saying, hey, I think I'm doing it, and then they topple over. Uh, and the parents say, no, no, you're getting it, and they help evaluate. But then there's what that's surrounded by is not, you don't have to act all the time, we don't have to evaluate all the time. There's all this time, especially early in parenting, of just beholding your child. Because that security of being beheld is actually what gives us the freedom to act and evaluate. My aunt, um, is my mother's older sister, Marianne, is at the end of her life. Uh, she's in her 80s. She has stage four cancer, not unusual at that age. And she's come home from the nursing home, and she's living in my cousin's house. And we got to go see her two weekends ago. And, and it struck me, my Aunt Marianne, who's now pretty much in bed, can't say a lot, can't do very much. What was there for me and for my parents, her sister, her brother-in-law, my parents, to do? All we had to do was behold her again. And we just sat by her bed and we said, Marianne, we love you. You've, you've given us such love. You've raised your sons. You're now going to God. We just, you know, you begin your life beholding, you end your life beholding. And that's what family's meant to be. Now, family is not that for everybody. Uh, many of you may not be parents. You may not have had the experience I had with my son. But every one of you, your life began, and someone beheld you. And that happened for me, too. My parents beheld me, and they named me. And then life goes on, and even within the best families, there's a moment when that face doesn't meet our face, when that gaze doesn't look on us, and the gaze is broken. We look for a face, and we don't find one. And all of us are given a name, but some of us don't really like the name we got. <laughs> uh, I don't mind Andrew, 
Andrew means manly, which I feel most of the time, except when I'm with Bob Guaglioni, and then I don't feel manly, uh, especially when I try to hug him. I have neither the height nor the circumference uh, to hug him. Um, but I'm not so wild about the last name Crouch, uh, honestly, which I got. It was really awkward in middle school, middle school terrible name to have in middle school. Um, you know, you may not have ever had someone who gazed at you that way. Not everybody does. There are orphans in orphanages right now, and they've never had a, a face meet their face, and, and maybe not really have a proper name. And the reason we come into a place like this is to remember there is someone who we call Father, who has known you that deeply every moment of your life, has gazed upon you, has beheld you, has a name for you that you don't even know yet, but that is going to be given to you. It actually says this in Revelation 2. At the end of days, God will give everyone a white stone with a name on it that, that no one has ever heard and no one will understand except the one who receives it. This is what we're meant for. And then what are we meant to do as we grow, as we learn these basic things of being human, of you know, first uh, walking and then talking and then toilet training, which is the greatest accomplishment of life, and most of us figured it out, so congratulations. Um, well, Israel, the people of Israel started to realize there was a deeper purpose for family. There was something more they were supposed to do, and I actually want us to read this together because this was the thing that family was for in Israel the thing that the family was supposed to do. And we as the family of God, this is still for us. So let's actually read this all aloud together. Deuteronomy uh, 6, starting at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is a family text. It's actually set in the context of family before these lines. God says, if you want your children's children to enjoy the life that I intend for you, here's what you are to do. If you want generations of descendants, here's what your family is meant to be about. It's in some ways about beholding the way of God, the law of God, the Torah, that you're supposed to uh, keep it in your heart, behold it, and then bring it up and act on it, recite it, and then evaluate. And then that's going to shape how you go through your day. When you go out on the doorpost of your house is going to be this little scroll. The Jewish people still do this. It's called a mezuzah. And it has inside this beautiful case that's on the doorpost of every Jewish home are the initial words that we just read. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. And what you're going to do is make God's way part of that cycle of beholding, acting, evaluating, and then beholding again. So when you get up in the morning, you'll be beholding it. And then as you act during the day, you're evaluating based on it. And, and when you lie down at night, you'll behold it again. 
This is the pattern that the family of God is meant to have, this kind of deep investment of ourselves in the way of God. And the way we are to invest ourselves is very interesting. He tells us something about what it is to be a person. So my first model for what it is to be a person is someone who can behold, act, evaluate, and behold. But the second model is built in here in the way we are to love God. It says you shall love the Lord your God with three things. Do you remember what they were before we put them up? Your heart, your soul, (laughs) there's some divergence here, we're remembering different things, and your might was the word we used. I'm going to use strength, uh, actually, as I keep going. So what are these three things? These are actually three components of being a whole human being. A whole human being has a heart, and for the Hebrews, so we think about the heart maybe as just where we feel things. But for the Hebrews, it wasn't just what your, your center of feeling. It was also your center of desire, like the feeling of wanting something. And then the heart was actually the seat of the will, the, the courage to pursue what you desire. So the heart was feeling desire, action on desire, kind of your will to move out into the world based on what you most hope for and want. The soul is probably the hardest thing to define, but I guess this means it's the depth of who you are. You, as a human being, are, you're not just a bundle of feelings And you're not just a body with strength, but you've got a soul. You've got a self to you. I don't know where it is, down here somewhere. (laughs) And it's the very center of your identity, of your passion. It's what, whoever looked at your face the first time in your life, it's what they were looking into through your eyes, your very self. And then there's strength. There's this bodily capacity to move through the world, and our bodies are built to move at least in three dimensions. I was with this physical trainer, um, this guy who's worked for like the Golden State Warriors, he's now a coach at the University of Wisconsin, and, uh, and he was looking for a big challenge, so I asked him to be my physical trainer. I made that part up. Uh, but uh, I was asking him actually about the training of strength and the training of bodies, and he said, well, there's three planes of strength for the human body, the sagittal plane, the coronal plane, and the capital plane. It's the three dimensions your body can move through. And fitness is being able to move up and down, side to side, forward and back, all three planes, and then to torque through each of those dimensions, right, to rotate. He said, good training trains all of those. And uh, that's what you're made to do. Now, how many things do you do that require you to move through all three planes of action? <laughs> I asked him about, like, work, speaking of technology, I asked him about working a computer. I was like, which planes of action are involved when I'm, like, sitting at a keyboard? He said, no planes. <laughs> but we were made to move in all these different ways. That's strength, right? Now, what does family do? Oh, oh, uh, by the way, Jesus picks up on this, the Shema, and when he's asked what's the greatest commandment, he actually recites it and he adds something, which rabbis did not normally do to the text of Scripture. Jesus was an unusual rabbi. He says, you shall love the Lord with all, your God with all your heart, soul, my, strength, and mind. He adds mind. And so our mind is our capacity to reflect, to evaluate, to think, to plan, to remember. And we're meant to love God with all of this. And what family does is develop each one over time, especially when we're small. First, maybe developing strength, just figuring out how to pull yourself up on the edge of the crib. Then figuring out how to catapult yourself off the crib. This is what my son did. And, you know, four feet onto the floor, which he seems to have survived, though we, seem, we sometimes think that explains certain behaviors, uh, actually. Um, so we, we help you grow through, a, through beholding, acting, evaluating, and beholding. Uh, good, you just walked, or good, you just attempted that, you know, uh, free throw. Try again, right? That's the training of strength. 
And then the training of the mind. This is school and education and learning to read and learning to integrate uh, more and more knowledge into your mind. And then the training of your soul. Like family is where we behold one another as ourselves and help one another grow as ourselves. We're made to use all these things and develop all these things. And now's the part of my talk where I finally get to technology. Because I actually want to suggest to you that what technology has done is it's preventing us from beholding, especially, and it's preventing us from being integrated whole persons who are heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let me illustrate this, and let me illustrate it by describing what technology has done for us and done to us, what happened when we bit the apple, as it were. Let's, I'm just going to give you one picture of how technology works, but it applies to so many different things in our lives. Think about the need to get from one place to another. So uh, this morning I had to come from Swarthmore to here, to Chaz Ford. Uh, 150 years ago, I would have had only one option if I wanted to get here in a reasonable amount of time, and it would have been totally available and possible to do this. I would have taken a horse. So here's a horse. Now, I do not have a horse now, and in fact, I've only ridden a horse, I think, once in my life until two weeks ago when I got to ride a horse again. I was in Wyoming on the south fork of the Shoshone River, stunning uh, Rocky Mountains, and on the ranch of some friends, and they invited us to go horseback riding. So I got to ride a horse several times just two, uh, three weeks ago. It was a stunning experience riding up into the mountains on this amazing creature. And what was the first thing I wanted to do when I walked up to the horse that was going to be my horse, this huge creature? Well, I wanted to run away and not attempt it because it was scary. <laughs> what I wanted to do, actually, was to behold this horse. Like, even before I rode her, it was a mare, a black mare with a medallion on her forehead. I just beheld, she was so amazing, like an amazing creature, big, strong, quiet, calm, looking at me with that very large eye as I sort of stroked the side of her head. And I was like, wow, you're amazing. And she was like, wow, you're an amateur. And we had this kind of mutual encounter. <laughs> and, and she was like, I'm in charge, which became clear once I got on her. And of course, once I got on her, I needed strength, right? It takes a certain amount of muscular attention and capacity to ride a horse. And then you discover muscles you didn't know you have because they get bumped in various ways while the horse trots. And the next day you discover all these things, parts of your body that you didn't know were there. Anyway, uh, strength, right? Tremendous physical uh, engagement required. It, it took my mind like to pay attention to how she was reacting to things, to pay attention to the road ahead and to decide to let her do whatever she wanted, which is mostly what I did. And actually, it had this kind of soul quality to it. Like, it was a really amazing experience, this encounter with this other creature, with God's creation. That's riding a horse. It's a heart, soul, mind, strength activity. And, and any good relationship with a horse begins with beholding, and it actually ends at the end of the day. When you put that horse up in the stable, you've taken the saddle off, and any good person who cares for a horse will just behold that horse. We realized over time that we could bring some technology to this. So we went to the horseless carriage, <laughs> the car. And the car, and this is a particularly beautiful example, uh, made things a lot easier because uh, you don't, they, well, cars don't poop, at least not in the same way horses do. And, uh, you know, you can, they're much faster. You can get places a lot 
uh, further. But you can, of course, immediately realize that moving from the horse to the car, it does take a kind of element of soul out of it, I think. There's a soulful relationship with a horse that, that you have to have to be a good owner or rider of that horse. Now, there are people who have very soulful relationships with their cars, and there are people who love to behold their cars. And at classic car places, you can see a bunch of men of a certain age all beholding their cars with <laughs> probably too much delight. Um, but it's a shift away from that integrated personhood you had to have with the, with the horse, that continual care, having to feed it every day, having to uh, know how it was doing every day. The car made it a little easier, but the car did still require mind and strength because a lot of aspects of the car, this era of car, you could repair yourself, right? And you could learn how it worked. You could know even very, uh, if you really became an expert, you could become a really mechanically expert person. You could care for your own car, which also required strength. And in fact, you know, uh, it used to be back in the day, out in the driveway or in the garage, dad, usually dad, would be out there working on the car, using his strength, using his mind to work with this mechanical thing. And th the bonus was the kids, as they watched their father doing it, first they'd see their dad doing something that required great skill and a lot of knowledge, and the kids start to pick that up. And they also learn new vocabulary words at various moments, as dad, you know, something doesn't work. So it was useful, very educational. And there was actually quite a bit of engagement with this kind of car. The thing is, though, we're now starting to replace, this was a mechanical car. It was all machine. But now what we have, we can bring up like a Tesla. My, I don't have a Tesla. Maybe you have a Tesla. I'd love to have a Tesla. Let me drive your Tesla. But the thing is, what we've moved from, these are both still cars, but actually we've moved from mechanical to computational. Because actually cars now, not just Teslas, but almost every car we drove in today, it's basically a bunch of computers on wheels. And you actually can't do hardly anything with it, with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So whereas dads used to be able to take their kids out and be like, hey, let's, here's how a carburetor works. Here, you know, let's actually tune this. Or you know, here, let's change the spark plugs. Or let's change the oil. Cars now, I, we got a new car. It's a plug-in hybrid kind of thing. I was very excited about it last year. And you know, I thought, well, why don't I show uh, my daughter? Uh, my son was off to college. Why don't I show my daughter how to how things work under the hood, right? So hey, Amy, uh, you know, I'm your dad. I need to teach you some things about cars. So let's just pop the hood here. And uh, well, there's a big plastic cover that covers everything. And uh, <laughs> this blue thing over here is the windshield wiper fluid. So you like open that up, and we're done. I mean, you wonder why people say, you know, kids don't respect their parents anymore. It's because they never see their parents doing anything respectable. Like, yeah, yeah, here's how you change the windshield wiper fluid. I mean, I, my dad taught me how to fix a carburetor. I can't do that with this computational thing that's in my driveway. So now elements of mind and strength have been subtracted, and now I've got cruise control. I cruised here at 45 miles per hour because I'm a Christian. I keep to the speed limit on the Baltimore Pike. Some of you were passing me, I noticed you, uh, on, on that long stretch. I mean, literally, I just pull a little button, I barely have to move, and the car just sort of glides along. And so eventually, of course, what is technology going for? What's it going to bring us? It's going to bring us the self-driving car. And in this, like, no strength required, no mind required. It doesn't have a steering wheel. The Google-mobile doesn't, right? You're just going to go in and, I mean, put on the DVD player and drift off to sleep while the car whisks you to wherever you want to go. Now, that's awesome in terms of transportation. And, it, you know, I, I may well sign up for it. 
but it's terrible in terms of being a person. And what happens when we move from the world of horses and all these things that required skill of us, required investment of ourselves, required us to behold, to things that, well, I mean, you go out to the stable, you can just be with your horse. Does anyone, is anyone going to go out and just gaze into the little face of that Google mobile? Like, and have it look back? You're not even going to own it. It's just going to come whisk you back and forth. But you're not going to be a person with it. And so what has happened to the home is that over time, we've filled our homes with things that make life very easy for us, but they also remove any aspect of beholding, of heart, soul, mind, strength, integration, and the move from the world of Little House on the Prairie, where life was very difficult, but the whole family had to work together, had to cooperate together, and they'd work hard during the day, they'd act during the day. But then at the at night, when night fell, no electric lights, you couldn't answer email, they would just get together around a table and then around a hearth and sing together and behold one another. And when you move from Little House on the Prairie to Big House in the Gated Community, Life gets a lot easier, and it gets a lot less interesting. And all of this, I haven't really said anything about glowing rectangles. <laughs> this is all, this is our cars. This is the electric lights in our house that allow me to act at any time of day. There's no rhythm in my life anymore of waking up before anything starts or ending the day in quiet. Now it's all humming, all running, all the time. And then we have these glowing rectangles that make it so hard for us to behold one another, like in your pizza shop, where instead of encountering one another's persons and engaging each other's souls and hearts and minds, we've now got these really impressive things that glow. I was with a mom. She's a, a working mom, and she needs to answer email at night, and she was working on her laptop, uh, sitting on the couch, laptop on her lap, getting things done, pounding out email, and her 16-year-old daughter was trying to get her attention. And her daughter kind of kept up ratcheting up the efforts to get her mom's attention. And finally, this woman said with much uh, kind of regret and chagrin, she said, finally, my daughter put her head down between the laptop and my face and said, Mom, look at me. <laughs> and she almost started to cry as she described this. That relationship of eye to eye, face to face, gaze, holding one into his gaze, she realized it had been interrupted by this thing that allowed her to work all the time but also to miss the chance to be with her daughter. And what we get instead is simulations of beholding. So on that screen, I can see what we call in video a one shot of a face. A one shot is the tightest shot. Just the face filling a screen. And I see that face with more intimacy and more clarity. I mean, now in like 1080p, like you can see every bead of sweat as the person prepares to serve or whatever. And I'm seeing that face in such fidelity and it's glowing at me. The only thing is I'm not beholding, I'm just looking. And that face is not beholding me. And yet it's so compelling. I actually think there's something about glowing things that compel us. If you had a, a screen with me on it right now, all of you would be looking at the screen version of me, not the real version. There's something about the glowing version that captures our attention. And then on the screens we have, you know, so we're seeing people more close up than we ever see anyone except perhaps our spouse or our child. But the people on these screens are more attractive than our spouse or child. 
right? So we'd rather look at them. And it gives us this simulation of beholding, and it also gives us this simulation of acting, a simulation of using heart, soul, mind, strength. So you can go down to the basement, and if you have, still have a Wii, uh, you can play Wii tennis, right? And you'll be like swinging, and you'll see a ball going over to your opponent, and he'll come back, you'll volley, and you'll think you're playing tennis. But if you were ever to go out to a real tennis court that requires actual three-dimensional tennis, you would find you have not been playing tennis, you were playing Wii tennis, which is not tennis. <laughs> and actually, if you went out and played real tennis and developed the heart, soul, mind, strength capacities to play tennis, you would actually be really good on Wii tennis, but when you're really good on Wii tennis, you are not good on, at actual tennis. Simulations of beholding, simulations of action. My wife and I decided we wanted something different. I didn't want to just have nostalgic memories from when my children were very small. I wanted the whole experience until they went off to whatever their lives became. I wanted to, to have heart, soul, mind, and strength in our home. And I wanted beholding and acting together and evaluating together and beholding in our home. So we made a few decisions. Uh, I wrote about them in the book. You can read more about them, but I'll end with this. Just a couple, just three things. The two, first two are the most important, maybe. Maybe the last one's the most important. We decided we were going to rearrange the space of our house. We were going to build our house, especially the center of our home, around things that didn't have a button, that didn't work by themselves, that weren't just a consumer lifestyle, because we wanted to create, not just be consumers. So, so we decided when you walk into our house, we don't want you to see or notice hardly any of these easy everywhere devices. Um, so when you walk in, the first thing you'd see if you come to our home, it's a small, first floor, open floor plan. First thing you'd probably notice is a grand piano, a Steinway grand piano, which we bought with our children's college fund uh, when they were young. Because any kid can go to college, but not every kid can grow up with a grand piano, so it's obviously the right choice. So, uh, you know, here's this thing, right? It's not like pressing play on, on a CD player or, or YouTube or Spotify. Like, if you're gonna play this, it sort of sits there saying, do you wanna play me? You wanna try me? Do you have the heart to play me? Have you developed your mind? Have you developed your strength, the capacity of your body? Come on, give me a try. And our kids did, and they learned, and then they quit. Uh, but they went on to play the viola, which my son is doing professionally now, and to sing, which my daughter is doing. Because we built a, a house where when you walked into the living room, it said, try me. The craft table in front of the window that always had paints or crayons or something or Play-Doh to play with the books on the shelves, the fire in the fireplace, the original glowing rectangle was the fireplace that you could sit around and you don't get distracted by it. It actually helps you pay attention. The candles over our, uh, we have an actual chandelier, actual candles over our dining table and every night we turn off all the electric lights and we turn on, uh, that's not the right word, we light the candles and we behold one another in the candlelight. And by the way, when you reach a certain age, it's actually better for your spouse to behold you in candlelight than under the glare of electric light. So the candles are lit, and Catherine, I, I know I look at Catherine, I, I hope she looks at me and thinks, oh, my young husband. <laughs> so that's the space. And then when we finally got a TV, when the kids were like 11 or 12, we put it in the basement. Well, I don't mind having a TV. I just don't want it be, to be the center of my home. So space, we change space. Rearrange your furniture around the things you want to be most true of your family. And then we change time, because we're meant to live with this Sabbath rhythm in our lives, a rhythm of using all the good things of the world and then a rhythm of resting from them. 
So one for us, what Sabbath means for us with respect to technology is one hour a day, that's dinner time. One day a week, for us that's Sunday. And one week a year, when we are able to take, we take a week of vacation in the summer, we turn off everything we can. The laptops close, the phones go to off, turn off the electric lights at dinner hour, and we're back in this world that asks us to behold and to use heart, soul, mind, strength. One hour a day, one day a week, one week a year. And then the other thing, the big change I made as I wrote this book was my mornings. I would wake up, and before I did anything else, I would pick up my phone, which now says I'm 45 seconds over, so I'm almost done. I'd pick up my phone, and all these notifications would have piled up during the night, and I'd immediately be plunged into acting without any beholding. And I realized, I have got to stop doing this. So for one thing, we got an old-fashioned alarm clock. That now wakes me up on mornings I have to get up. I go downstairs, I make some tea, and before I even pick up the phone, I, go, I, I make myself go outside. I did it this morning. And whether it's raining, cold, hot, humid, whatever, usually humid in Delaware County, I walk out, and I just feel the air, and I behold, I say, thank you, God, for this day. And then I go back in, and then I can pick up my phone. And then one more thing. There's one more thing we do that perfectly, I think, combines heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's not what you might expect, but it's singing. What's the thing you do that can most express your emotion, that can most engage your mind if it has lyrics worth singing, that can most require your strength, and above all, especially in churches, some churches, people know how to sing with soul. I don't know if that's true at Calvary Chapel, but there, I've been places where people sing with soul, with the fullness of self. And there's something about singing that gathers up everything we are and everything we have and offers it to one another as we make music together and to God in worship. And so what it is to be a person? Now, your family may or may not sing at home, but you're part, you're, you're part of a church family. You're part of a church family, and this family sings because we want to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to do that together. Lord, may we behold you in these last moments of worship, but in this entire day of Sunday, in this entire week to come. May we act and evaluate in the light of your law and your word. May we come back again one week from now again to behold you and your beauty. And God, we're even going to sing. I think every one of these is going to be mentioned in these words we're about to sing. We want to love you with our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. And so we stand now to worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>